Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Elaine Heath and Janine Heath McGlynn, thank you guys so much for being with me today. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. Elaine has been on before, so listeners, you might recognize her name. She is a theologian. She was here for an episode called The Church of the Future? Question mark, Episode 143. Josh will put a link to that episode in the show notes. But Elaine, you don't know this. That is one of the 10 or 15 or so most popular episodes of this podcast. Really? I yes. didn't know that. Wow. And I got a lot of feedback from people individually, so I know that that's a real number. People really loved it and, and found your vision for a sort of interconnected place of healing, you know, connected to the earth, connected to each other, uh, really inspiring, as did I. So thank you for that. Thanks. That's so great. And Janine, I'm meeting you for the first time. You are a former high school counselor, now a therapist, mm-hmm. and the two of you are sisters, and you have mm-hmm. co-authored a book called Loving the Hell Out of Ourselves, a title for which I imagine many writers are supremely jealous, myself included. (laughs) What a title. (laughs) And it makes me think that if you have a little bit of humor in titling your book, a book about, you know, fear, hate, damnation, trauma, abuse, ultimately redemption, but a lot of heavy subject matter, there's got to be some 
stuff in there that makes people laugh a little bit? Like, can, can we start off this heavy, uh, hopefully hopeful conversation, but heavy nonetheless, with a little bit of levity? You got? Do you have anything people have sort of told you about as they're reading it? One of the ones that they've told me about is the chapter where I, I talk about meeting my husband that I'm now married to. We've been married for almost 23 years now. So I was driving a convertible and <laughs> I was in my last pastoral appointment before I went into academia full time. And so here I, I was in my 40s and I'm appointed to this little village church. There's so many expectations and projections on women clergy anyway. So um, my daughter had talked me into getting this little Miata. I was driving it with <laughs> the person who was my husband's mother. And I was brand new. You know, I'd been there for maybe two months uh, in this appointment. And I took his mother to the park. And it's this, it's this crazy sleepless in Seattle kind of scene where I meet him and I'm all sweaty and hot. And he's fearful where's his mother because she has cancer and hasn't been out of the house in six months. And I didn't know that. So I took her on an adventure and I bring her back. And there he is, you know, with his county engineer truck, you know, looking perturbed. <laughs> so that whole episode of how I uh, met him and began to become friends with him. And then we finally uh, got married. It was, it was full of a lot of really funny things. <laughs> it it does sound like a meet cute from, from a rom-com. And I can imagine yeah. <laughs> if it were in a film, like there would be a nice aerial shot of you guys in the Miata. Maybe yes. she's like clutching her hat or scarf to keep them from flying off uh-huh. and like holding onto the handle. And then you show up and he's freaking out. Well, that's yep. good. That's a nice, thank you for giving me that image for which we could kind of, all right, we've built up a little resilience here. (laughs) You have a great sort of statement of purpose at the end of your introduction, which I'm going to read now. And I want to sort of come back to it, the, the terms you use in there throughout as we talk. So the quote is, our heartfelt hope is that this book helps you, our readers, to know that love, not shame, not fear, not hate, not damnation, love is God's meaning, end quote. That's awesome. I hope that's true. If God exists, that's certainly true of God, right? Yeah. Yeah. So where does your story begin? What's the best starting place for us to understand what you guys have been through? In some ways, it begins with our parents' story. And um, they were both born in 1920. And so they were children during the Great Depression. And our mother was a coal miner's daughter from Harlan, Kentucky and knew great poverty, and our father knew poverty as well. And they knew also a lot of trauma. And our father was um, an original paratrooper in World War II. And I think between his childhood and his experience in the war and his own genetics, he was, you know, just propelled toward addiction and violence. Our mom was the primary wage earner in our family. And even though she was a very good nurse and had, you know, a college degree, nurses didn't have labor unions in those days. And so her her wages were very low, family with five kids, and and our dad was quite needy. And as is the case uh, with alcoholic thinking, if we just move somewhere else, everything, all, all the troubles will go away. So it was a, a rootless, constantly on the move, moving here, moving there. Um, Janine and I both, when we were in elementary school, went to some years, we went to multiple schools in the course of a year. And there were two years where I never finished the school year because we moved on and just never got re-enrolled. 
you just think about the poverty, the rootlessness, the violence, the neglect, our vulnerability to predators, and uh, how we kids try to take care of each other. I really functioned as a mother to Janine and to our other sister, Julie, who is Janine's twin. What's the age gap between the two of you? Seven years. Yeah, if, if you're, if you're going to end up being pushed into a mothering role, that's, that's a reasonable gap mm-hmm. where you could pick that up and, and probably do a pretty good job, I would imagine, Elaine. Oh, <laughs> do the best you can. I mean, I started taking care of them when I was six. I wasn't quite seven when they were born, and I took care of them until I was forced to leave home when I was 16. Elaine was a, a good sister mama. It is true that when siblings uh, take on a parental role, that there's often mistakes. But I know I am who I am because of Elaine and her early care of me. And uh, there's no no doubt that my sister and I survived because of her. Incredible. So I I wanted to try and sort of structure at least the first half of our conversation in sort of a storytelling format because the book is a memoir. And without listeners reading the whole book, I want to give them some sense of where the where it starts and where it ends. And so in a in a standard kind of storytelling structure, you have in the Pixar model, it's called And Every Day. And you sort of describe the way things were before whatever, the conflict starts in the story or whatever. But there isn't really an average day for you if you are constantly moving around and all of that. So rather than giving me like, what's an average day, like maybe fill in a bit more of like, what were the consequences for the two of you of that, you know, rootless life, addicted dad or dad who struggles with addiction, mom, who's a hard worker, but is not earning enough. Maybe just fill the picture out a little bit more. So we have two older brothers and then Julie and Janine are the twins that are younger. And so I'm right in the middle. My oldest, our oldest brother is seven years older than me. The twins are seven years younger than me. Okay. And when our mother became pregnant with the twins, I was six years old and we lived in this old sort of farmhouse that had no running water and uh, it had a wood burning stove for heat. It was on the edge of Glacier National Park in Montana. And we were there because my dad always wanted to get away from people. And he had inherited this house from a communist that passed away that he somehow knew. So we inherited the house and the horse. There was a horse involved. (laughs) And our mother was pregnant. She was 42. And our father had rejected her, like blamed her for being pregnant. And he was cruel to her through every pregnancy that she had. And he didn't want any of us kids. He uh, threatened us with guns and said terrible things to us as we were growing up and made it very clear with his behavior and words that he he didn't want us, you know. And um, so when the twins were born, mom brought them home and my, my brother Jeff and I were very close. He's a year and a half older than me. And we ran to see them and here were these two sweet little babies. We didn't know there were going to be two. Uh, our mother had had a, uh, I don't think they had ultrasounds and I think it was an x-ray and told us that she had the. Uh, she didn't tell us because she thought one of them might not survive because of infant mortality and her age. And so here are these two little babies, and um, I just felt so in love with them that these little babies. And six weeks after that, after they were born, 
our mother quit her job at the hospital in Kalispell, Montana, and took the twins and myself on the train and went to uh, Roseburg, Oregon, where we had lived prior to all this, and left our father because she couldn't take him anymore. It was so painful because Jeff was my center of warmth, my brother that's a year and a half older than me, our, our brother. And so it was th things like that, that just constantly this leaving each other, fist fights, holes in the wall. When Janine was, I think you were two, weren't you, Janine, or a little mm -hmm. less than two, yeah. she almost died from failure to thrive. Uh, they were taken to the hospital. She was in the hospital a long time. And remember, our mother's a registered nurse and knows how to provide mm -hmm. health care for people. But we didn't get health care provided for ourselves, whether it was a penicillin shot or a trip to the dentist or anything. We just didn't get health care. When mom brought Janine home from the hospital, she was so thin. She looked like a little concentration camp survivor with old people eyes, you know, just a little baby. And the first thing mom said, she was yelling at us, at my siblings and me, that we allowed her to get so sick as if it were our fault. And the, the fault was she didn't receive the nurture she needed in this household. And right. so there were just many things like that that happened to us as we were growing up. Yeah, it makes me think of clients that I've seen who are lower on the socioeconomic spectrum Often that is partially because of, or it is at least in combination with ingrained mental health issues, right? Perhaps genetically, perhaps uh, really bad learned patterns of, of thought and, and emotional expression through really tough childhoods. I mean, really just the kind of stuff you guys are talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm tempted to, like where my mind wants to go is... Why do you think you guys were able to overcome this? But I, that would be putting the cart before the horse. I think we. Yeah. I want to understand more about the situation, mm -hmm. as tough as it is, honestly, to listen to it um, mm -hmm. and to put myself there. But let's get some more color this way. You talk about patriarchal authority structures in the book being a significant element throughout your stories of the various evils that you have had to contend with. What were the specific patriarchal authority structures? I mean, we've already got your dad. Um, and I would imagine just given the the time frame, this, this time in our country, that despite his being essentially completely unfit for fatherhood, that by being the husband, the dad, the man of the house, you know, what he said went, uh, mm -hmm. you know, having not earned that authority in any meaningful way. Is that true? And, and then what else besides that would fit into that category? You know, I write about Fr Fred Flintstone and Jackie Gleason and what I saw on television mirrored what we saw at home hmm. in that Fred would come home. Our dad's name was Fred also, but Fred Flintstone would come home and scream Wilma and Jackie Gleason would scream at his wife and say, one of these days, pow. And our father, we didn't eat at the table. We served him on a tray. And so he would sit in his chair and dinner would be brought to him. And in our culture and in every context, um, men had the power. Our mom in 1971 needed a car and went, she was the breadwinner and went to the bank and our father, they were separated. Our folks were separated for a brief period of time. And um, 
she uh, had a job at the uh, psychiatric hospital in Anchorage and was not allowed to get a, a loan for a car without a man's signature. And it did not have to be our dad, her husband. It could be really any man. And so the people that we were living with signed for the loan with her. And that was just the nature of patriarchy in our culture in 1970. That's not that long ago, historically. You know, going back to the stories of our life, I, I want to say that a lot of meaning we assign is based on some of the stories that were told to us. And so one of the stories that was told to me was about almost dying from failure to thrive and that I was weak. And in some ways this protected me because I think my siblings and my parents were afraid I might die. And so I wasn't hit or as often as my twin sister in particular, I I was guarded in that way, but it was at her expense. And that's also just the dynamics of alcoholic families where different labels are given, but in my own belief about myself, uh, you know, just that I'm not weak and there's no, you know, that healing from that. I want to pick up on what you're talking about with those stories told to us in childhood. It makes me think, and this is not my story episode, but, but Mm -hmm. there was a real strong one in my family growing up about my dad that he had had a really bad case of scarlet fever around age five or something. The The story is that he saw an angel or Jesus or something like that in the window. My grandma was in there with him. You know, I'm hearing this, I don't know, 30 years later, but, and he says, oh, there's Jesus. And she says, oh, he's dying now. This is it. But then he was healed or he, he, he recovered from this life threatening thing which also was supposed to have made him impotent, but that's not true because here I am. Uh, But then it would like that story though, dad saw Jesus. Like if ever something came up around maybe my mom being a little petty or, you know, not being as, I don't know, good of a Christian adult or something, she would say things like half joking, like, well, we didn't all get to see Jesus, Jim, you know, like, and it, it, but it did become this thing. Like, and they would tell me, well, we really think your dad was saved for a purpose. And occasionally that would be, I was like, well, maybe that was so that he would have me because I have a purpose. And, you know, all these, all these sort of meanings we can attach to these foundational family stories. It's not something I've paid a lot of attention to in my life, but I think it's a really, really interesting dynamic that is probably very widespread. I mean, I haven't Mm -hmm. read anything about this, but I just would imagine families have these stories Mm -hmm. and some of generational trauma, which I think may come in to our Mm -hmm. conversation at some point is passed down actually through these stories that no longer meet the, the reality needs of the offspring, but met the needs of the parent or the grandparent, you know, during the time that they lived. I think one of the things that that Janine and I both experienced, and maybe you too, Dan, everybody we know that's been traumatized, is this sort of toxic shame is put into us, you know, when we're violated, when people intentionally harm us or exploit us. And the the voice of toxic shame tells us that we don't belong, that that we're worthless, you know, these sort of horrible self-loathing statements that go off in our heads toward ourselves. One of the things that has to happen in order to recover from this kind of thing to be resilient is to intentionally 
reframe our stories with meaning for ourselves that we are loved that we were not we were not abandoned by god and you know some things that janine and i have done to heal and uh, the making of meaning one of the stories that was told to me over and over which had a terrible double you know like mixed meaning so my our father's mother her name was dolly and she was a very gifted capable woman she just was and had a strong personality and our brother mike lived with grandma and grandpa Heath a number of times through his childhood, and he adored them. He loved being with them. His telling about our grandma Dolly is completely different than what we would hear from our mom and dad. So what hmm. our mom and dad would say to me is, you remind us so much of grandma and Dolly. And then the next breath is how much they couldn't stand her. Right. Like she's, she can sew, she can do all these things. She's um, very creative. And, and then they would say well, all the reasons why they didn't like her and couldn't stand her and were glad to be away from her. So I, it gave me this, like, I didn't know what I was supposed to be or do, you know, whatever it was, it was probably the wrong thing. And yeah. Yeah. To put a little uh, therapy language on it, Janine, I'm sure you'll recognize this. What I heard you talk about there, these, these statements we come to believe, you know, I don't belong, I'm worthless. In cognitive behavioral therapy and in CBT informed trauma therapy, we call those core beliefs, right? So core beliefs are these enduring attitudes we have toward ourselves, toward other people, toward the world at large. Someone who's assaulted at night might come to believe the world's not safe at night. I can't go out at night. Mm -hmm. It's an overgeneralization designed to keep this person safe, but of course it's not accurate. There are some places at night that are perfectly safe and there are some places that are less safe and it's it's all gradation of probability. And these core beliefs, man, I mean, they come up in every type of cognitive therapy because they are powerful. Like we are, we are storied beings for whatever reason. Maybe it's some people think that's because that was evolutionarily adaptive, that uh, we figure out how to put truths into stories and they're more easy to remember. And if those people you know, have better memories for stories than they will survive. And the people who don't will not, I mean, I don't know what the mechanism is. I don't think anybody knows for sure, but those, yeah, those core beliefs, man, a lot of those come from our families and then they can also, we can generate our own fresh ones through traumatic experiences and other negative experiences. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Janine, just in your work as a therapist. Yeah. You know, I often look at core beliefs and I look at also the meta messages that people, particularly parents, often don't intend but are are uh, interpreted, and those are often uh, reinforcing a core belief. And when Elaine and I think about how do we love the hell out of ourselves, one of our main themes is opening clenched fists, opening what we hold on tight to, and examining in that and letting go of some of those core beliefs. And it takes um, effort, it takes compassion, a degree of curiosity, a great deal of love and grace because it, this rhythm of healing is through contraction and retraction. And, and so it's dancing up to a belief that has helped us to survive or we've navigated our life around is not easily let go of but it can be done. And it's done usually in small increments of questioning its truth and questioning our logic behind the truth. 
that's a good description of the kind of work that I do with clients who are working through core beliefs as part of trauma work, for instance. So we've got a decent sense of the traumas from childhood. But before we start talking about kind of how you started turning the corner and healing, are there more examples from adult stories that you'd like people to hear or that context would be helpful for where we're headed? For sure. And this ties back into the patriarchy question you asked a little while ago. Um, For both of us, we, um, as teenagers, came to the Christian faith. Uh, which which in some ways really helped us and in other ways really harmed us. Yeah. And so we entered the world of Christian patriarchy and um, all the- The so-called benevolent patriarchy. <laughs> That's so benevolent. It doesn't oh, ever so seem funny. to work out that way though, does it? No. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we weren't in the same denomination and we were, lived thousands of miles apart, but there were some parallels in terms of our stories as far as trying really, really hard to fit into that good Christian wife mold, doing everything we could to not ask the questions that kept coming up in our minds. And and then finally, for each of us in our own way, coming to a space of awakening to how trauma had shaped our lives and to be in contact with people that helped us begin to heal. And then out of the healing journey, our vocations emerged mine in a theological direction, Janine's in a therapeutic direction. And yet at the same time, because we've been co-healers on this journey and we've helped each other to heal, uh, my theological work is very much informed by therapeutic wisdom. And Janine is a fine lay theologian because of, because of the work she's done too. So we, we had to come to terms with all of this and we had to make really hard choices along the way to not participate in our own subjugation anymore, in our own dehumanization, and to begin to speak up and do what we felt we were called to do as human beings and as adults and as people of worth. So that's a, that's a significant part of our story. Hey all, this is editor and producer Josh Gilbert. If you'd like to hear ad-free and uncut versions of these conversations, you can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash dancoke. Uh, this week in particular, that means hearing more of Elaine and Janine's background and just an uncondensed version of the question and answers. Patrons also get two additional exclusive episodes per month, as well as access to the private Facebook group. And this month, that includes a free live stream of the mini conference that we're holding at the end of the month in Seattle. Again, if you'd like to join, you can at patreon.com slash dancoke. Now back to Dan's conversation with Elaine and Janine. When I was 14, toward the end of ninth grade, our parents told me and my twin sister that we needed to find a place to live. And so I lived with several families and was ultimately adopted by another family and they were not good to me. Uh, he was an elder in the Baptist church, but they were, were supposedly a good Christian family. And Elaine also, and this is ties in with patriarchy, but also in the farming out had Elaine, I hope this is okay if I mm-hmm. share this. Um, I mean, it's in our book. Yeah. <laughs> um, our parents, uh, she had a boyfriend who moved, uh, was in Alaska and moved away and 
long story short, Elaine became a child bride in that our parents uh, signed permission for her to be married at 16 while in high school. They kind of forced and, me. They set yeah. it up so that I was forced to even, I didn't want to. Wow. Yeah. And I'm sure there was some theological and, justification for that as well as whatever mm-hmm. other kinds of justification. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a few ways to go here. Jeez. Um, <laughs> I want to hear a little bit from each of you about, how the good Christian wife role added to that traumatization. So let's start with you, Elaine, just because we already heard you were a child, a child bride at 16 against your will, and that there was some theological justification put Mm -hmm. on that, you know, from whom and and anything else about sort of how that stirred stuff up within you and, and harmed you. Well, I was a brand new Christian when I was sent to live with the boyfriend's family thousands of miles away. And they were a very conservative sort of fundamentalist family and shame-based religion, I would say. And right away, looking back, I'm surprised they said I could stay there just knowing how uh, the mother of the family was. But right away, the pressure started. And I'd only been there, I want to say, a month. I think that's about right, a month. And uh, the mother said, that we had to get married so that we wouldn't commit fornication. She was yeah. not going to have fornication under her roof. And I'm like, I don't have time to fornicate. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm too anxious and don't have time or even privacy oh for it because I was staying with his sister, you know, sharing a room with his sister. And I had gotten re-enrolled in high school and I was uh, just like one tick away from having constant panic attacks, you know, and mm. I mean, it was just, it was a very stressful time. I was totally freaked out about leaving Janine and Julie because I felt like their lives were in danger and I wasn't there to be a buffer anymore and protect them. And they would have been about eight Eight. or nine at the time, nine or Mm -hmm. 10. Yeah. And the man that I married had mental illness that I I think he had two personality disorders that were undiagnosed because this is back in the early 70s, right? And it was, uh, it took years and years and these things got worse and worse as time go by time went by. So I had a violent marriage. It was violent and it was all mixed in with patriarchy in the church. So I was taught in the church to submit to him no matter what, even if he killed me. The wife is always supposed to submit to her husband, even if he's violent, because then by doing so, by her submissive spirit, her meek spirit, the violent husband might be saved. Well, this, this was a bunch of nonsense, but yeah. and somewhere in my heart, I knew it was nonsense, but I had to survive. So I, I wrote quite a bit about that experience of the years, what kind of what happened and what helped me to begin to wake up. It started with a trip to the dentist. I had gone to a dentist and by this time my kids were, I don't know, two and four maybe or something like that. And the dentist uh, looked at my mouth and just kind of winced because we'd had no good dental care growing up. So I had a lot of cavities and problems and crooked teeth and whatnot. And so the dentist told me I would need braces. I would need, he told me this whole treatment plan. It was very expensive. It was like more than buying a new car. And (laughs) he said, okay, your budget, you know, we can budget payments. They were telling me what I could do to pay for this. And I was thinking in my head, they don't know. I don't have a budget. I don't have money. I don't get to have my own money at all. Any money I earn, I have to give to my husband. He makes all financial decisions and considers all the money his own money. And so how can I get my teeth fixed? How can I get the medical care I need when he controls it? And he'll choose whatever's 
cheapest because that's, that's how he treated me. So I went home from the dentist and I was looking in the mirror at my teeth and I was trying to wonder, I mean, trying to think, how would I look if my teeth were repaired, <laughs> if I didn't have the pain and the problems? And I just made a decision. I like I'd had enough. And I called the dentist's office and I said, I'm going to go with the treatment plan. And I, I drew a line in the sand, like for the first time. And I'd been married quite a few years by then. And that was the first act of defiance against being dehumanized in my marriage. It was the first real act that had significant consequences and uh, the beginning of me waking up to how I had lost my humanity. And I was ready to fight and work to get my humanity back. I mean, that's incredible. I, I can't be- I can't believe it happened at the dentist office. At I mean, the that, dentist office, be, yeah. <laughs> there can't be too many stories like that floating around. But it does make me think about other things where sometimes it takes running into external reality outside of our daily rhythms, mm-hmm. like getting a DUI or yeah. someone who's got shared custody there's a something pops up and the kids show up and they're drunk like these things that sort of then they they smack you and they they sort of force you to think about what you've been doing and and the trajectory and your story in a new light because they are in some sense external to to the day to day so that part makes sense but the fact that it's a dentist office is in, I mean it's incredible Janine let's let's hear about the good christian wife role uh, that you went through you know, I, I became a Christian when I was 12, and there was a an old school bus that the Baptist church would drive around the trailer park and pick up kids. And so I was picked up, and I very much converted and was baptized and very involved at the Baptist church, and people would take me to church. And, and through a series of events, I ended up at, at 18 leaving that church and joining a church that my one of my brothers belonged to that was still a Protestant evangelical church, but it was going toward orthodoxy. And it was kind of a hippie commune. So I, I started getting involved there. And I've got very involved and lived in the community. And part of that was to give a lot of my personal power to the church leadership. And I didn't do anything without their permission from returning to college to who I dated, which we called courting because it was in the name of purity. And yeah, that that's an item on my spiritual abuse screener, by the way, yeah. and, and scale is having to ask. Uh, actually, those are, those are two items having to follow a pastor or leader's personal rules around dating, sex, and marriage. Another one is being expected to consult a pastor or leader before making non-religious life decisions. Right. So you, got, you just got two of those right away. Yeah. When I read your survey, your your screener, it reminded me of also when I've taken the ACES test. Adverse childhood experiences for those not in for the non yeah. the non therapists uh, yeah. on the call yeah or uh, listening by yeah I, I I kept thinking about the Aces research when you guys were talking about your childhood yeah. yeah yeah well it just makes me feel like a freaking miracle and full of gratitude but going back to so I was part of the Orthodox community for twenty years and that's shortly after I joined a few years later. I married a man in that community and 
he is a gentleman and a, a gentle soul. But as I got healthier, those walls and those restrictions and the uh, cultish abuse in the name of religious actions just became intolerable. And the more I wanted to get out and the more angry I became, the more unacceptable I was within the community. But as far as being a good wife, I was an excellent wife uh, until I wasn't. And um, that meant I ironed a lot. I cooked a lot. We always welcomed people into our home. I was in overdrive to prove that I was good enough. And I just want to tell a little bit more of that story. And so our dad died in 1997. And I was involved in, a, at this point, I had moved. I still lived in the community, but I had sought spiritual direction from a Roman Catholic, which was really renegade of me. And <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> Frowned upon. So, and she was wonderful and she gave me a, a place to be. And so I, she helped me, uh, gave me an opportunity to lead ecumenical retreats with Catholics and non-Catholics. And I invited Elaine to come speak at our retreat. And it was at that retreat, my mom came, my twin sister, Elaine, that um, I met a woman that I eventually fell in love with. And, um, and Jackie and I have been together for 23 years now. And so now I'm really an excellent wife. And I also have an excellent <laughs> wife. <laughs> a little bit looser uh, role <laughs> definition, though, I would imagine. Yes, yes. <laughs> Coming out of uh, that patriarchal shitstorm. So I, before we actually get to the healing, I think it'd be cool to talk a little bit about the explosion of research on trauma in recent decades. I'm sure both of you are quite familiar with that research. And then maybe we can, that can kind of help us to, to think about your healing. If we talk first about sort of what's been discovered. So I'd really love to hear from both of you, maybe which finding or findings in, in this growing body of work like really hit you the most or made made the most sense of some part of your story or, you know, anything like that? For myself, one of the books that really, really helped me is The Body Keeps the Score, Bessel van der Kolk, and this whole issue around embodiment and um, the fragmentation that happens when we're traumatized, even just trying to tell the story again is difficult because of the fragmented nature of memory. And then, the you know, when I learned about the fight, flight, freeze mechanism, why that happens. And when I learned about toxic shame, that was really life-changing for me. I learned about toxic shame earlier. I was probably close to 40 when I learned about it. And then, uh, you know, learned more and more things as the years went by and was able to incorporate them into my own healing. But yes, the embodiment and coming to a place of being able to, to feel and to not numb the feelings for myself, my drug of choice has been work. <laughs> Just keep super duper busy, be a high achiever, and don't feel whatever is lurking below, unless I really, there's a moment where it breaks through, you know, kind of. So coming to a place where I can feel what I'm feeling, and I can treasure my body and not see it as something that's inherently got a target on it, you know, it's inherently something wrong with me. 
those were some core beliefs that came out of the trauma. And to, to be freed of that is amazing. And let me just follow up there before we hear from Janine, because Elaine, there is such a rich theological conversation to be had within Christian history around this question of embodiment, you know, facts versus feelings is one of the subheaders Mm -hmm. in the four spiritual laws tract, for instance. So can you say a little bit about sort of just give give us a little theological gloss on that? Because I imagine that had significant tie-ins with your own theological work. Yes. When I was in seminary, I encountered Julian of Norwich. A friend gave me uh, showings, Revelations of Divine Love. And I I read that book slowly because I had to keep reading the same thing over and over because it was like one epiphany after another, her seeing Christ as our good mother, the embodiment within within what she saw in her visions and the goodness of God. So that that really helped me a lot. And then um, more classes that I took and everything. But I I, I came to see how patriarchy has shaped our interpretation of scripture, how it shaped the Western tradition of the church, imbibing the so-called wisdom of Plato, you know, the sort of platonic dualism and the, the you know, the uh, elevating of the rational and the logical and all that, and then the suppression and the uh, saying that it's female, that the affective side of oneself. and Which is really... F- convenient for this. Yes, very convenient. Yeah. <laughs> Too convenient, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then I, I, yeah, so there, there's a lot that I could go into. And even, there's a book that I read when I was writing my dissertation called Fits, Trances, and Visions by Anne Taves. And it's the history of religious experience from the Wesleys to William James and the rise of the field of social sciences and behavioral sciences and how they there was an element in the beginning of behavioral sciences that was to explain religious experience without having to reference religion. Within all of that, you know, it really unpacked the patriarchy, also the racism in it, you know, attaching women's emotions and that to, to um, weakness and a womb craziness and some kind of crazy stuff. Well, and also culturally, you know, the, the Stoic Northern European cultures, well, those must be the most godly because they are the least emotionally flamboyant and the Spaniards and the Italians and the Latin Americans mm-hmm. and whatever, you know, anybody who's more yeah. florid, who's more kind of, you know, up and down and, and expressive. Well, that must be further from godliness. Again, really fucking convenient for these Northern European mm-hmm. male theologians. And by the way, if they are theologians yeah. or philosophers, they are already at a personality level sort of like I am myself, you know, we, we tend toward the abstract and the, and the cognitive and all that. It's actually kind of insane how few internal checks and balances there were on that. Like you'd think that yeah. some of these guys would be like, huh, isn't this a little convenient? And maybe those voices just were, were drowned out and, you know, didn't mm-hmm. become as popular. I'm sure there's a lot of mechanisms for that. Yeah. And like Julian of Norwich, I was really attracted to the mystics of the church and Mm -hmm. did a lot of research and writing and really identified. So what you find in the history of Christian mysticism is this kind of eros. You know, you find all the things that are rejected by the the dead white German theologians. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So, uh, So that served as a real corrective and it shaped my theological trajectory. It shapes my practice and my belief system today and and how I encounter the world. I love that. Janine, 
What about you? Which findings uh, from this explosion of research on trauma have been the most helpful for you? When I look back at the beginning of my therapy, where I could begin to be open to healing from trauma was back in the early 90s, there was a lot of writing about what it meant to be an adult child of an alcoholic. And, you know, prior to that, you didn't talk about your family dirty laundry at all. When you think back historically, before the internet, before Phil Donahue and Oprah Winfrey, it was considered uncouth to share so much, but it also was ripe for family secrets. And so to read a book, it blew my mind that it, that this type of family existed in such abundance that a book could be written about it. And it was my family. And that was the beginning of healing because it named the truth and it wasn't a secret anymore. And so I think, like Elaine was saying, it was very helpful to understand Stephen Levine's work in how our body holds trauma and that it needs to be released and how fawning even has been added to that. And that's very helpful to me. Yeah, they, they've added fawn to, to fight, flight, freeze. And mm-hmm. fawning is just like that submissive mm-hmm. posture towards whoever, you know, the, the traumatic agent is. It's, a, it's another possible um, avenue that, that our nervous system gives us when we're mm-hmm. overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about the process of healing. So you already mentioned, Janine, the, the rhythm, a sort of... Uh, you were talking about core beliefs, but you also mentioned it just as a general healing from trauma of like, it's a contracting and letting go, contracting and letting go with more letting go over time, you know, but, but what else do you guys want to say about what the healing process has been like? Mm-hmm. How did you go about it? I definitely think that it was divine. The therapist I went to, I, I was a young mother. I was having a lot of intrusive dreams, the same dreams many times a week. And I find, and I really, I didn't want to mess my children up. And that, that drove me to therapy, those two things. And I met uh, a person who became a, my midwife and our relationship, I believe it was the catharsis of change because I was able to receive genuine ethical care and and she conveyed genuine care for me and that was the beginning and so much could be said about that journey i was in therapy intensely for a couple of years i told my ex-husband i'll spend two hundred dollars and get a a list of books to read and i'll you know i was going to do it myself and um i went in for the intake And she listened and she told me I'd be in therapy for a few years or no, a solid year at least to work through the abuse. And I said, I wasn't abused. And she said, what do you mean you weren't abused? And I said, well, I wasn't burned with cigarettes. And that was the beginning of her just really letting me know about my own minimizing and my what had helped me survive my childhood was no longer serving me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And that's such an important theme. Just to tie it briefly back to the to the research we were talking about, <laughs> something that helps one person survive mm-hmm. psychologically, we can be grateful for the survival, but it often does not translate to other people or other situations even for the same person later in life. Right. And and so much of like that's almost entirely the mechanism, as I understand it, in the intergenerational trauma literature is that, you know, you're passing down stories and ways of thinking and core beliefs about the world that are no longer applicable for your children and grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And there's other things, too. There's epigenetic stuff around, you know, cortisol and stress and what and how that can activate different genes And you can pass that down too. But in terms of the sort of cognitive and sort of linguistic aspect of intergenerational trauma, it is about these survival thoughts, survival beliefs that they don't work anymore. And they set the future generations and future you up for failure when you're out of that survival situation. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Elaine, what should we know about your process of healing? Well, Janine played a very important role in my healing. When she was going through therapy, we, we would talk on the phone and write letters frequently and, and help each other. I wasn't in therapy at the same time she was. I started therapy later. But another factor was uh, certain individuals that came across my path. When I was um, 29 years old, I met a woman. I lived in Canada at the time, and I met a woman named Betty Jevons, who was on the staff of the large Pentecostal church that I attended. And she began to take me under her wing and just ask me to come with her to visit sick people and invite me to her Bible study and just kind of really paid attention to me. What she was doing was starting to mentor me, only I didn't really realize it. I kept wondering, why does she want to talk to me? I don't have anything to offer. You know, I just felt like, why? Why? But I, but I loved her intensely. She was a, she was a true mystic. And from the day I met her, I felt like she could see my heart and that she respected me. She believed me. She trusted me and she honored me. So that's that she always treated me like that in all these different contexts. So she was, as a religious leader, in some ways showing me the feminine face of God. I I might put it that way. Yeah. She was incredible. And so I experienced a very profound call experience over a period of a couple weeks towards the end of the time that I lived in Canada. And when I went and told her about it, I I was very nervous, you know, I could barely make eye contact and everything. (laughs) And I told her I I felt I was being called and I described what I was experiencing. And she started to laugh, which was unusual because she was a fairly sober kind of person. Uh, She starts to laugh and she says, I saw it the day I met you. I went home and wrote about it in my journal. You're not going to believe where God's going to take you. She said, I've seen it. She said, I've seen it. And, uh, but she never told me what she saw. <laughs> and then she said, uh, she was, she, she was like turned into Yoda, you know, and she said, uh, these little bullet point gems of wisdom and said, always say yes to God and God will open the way for you. God will take care of your children. You know, and, and she said, never make your ministry about money or about being in the limelight. Don't try to push your way in. If you're not welcome, don't go there. Just go where you're welcome. She said, God will always give you some kind of a John the Baptist to open the way for you. And so I, she, you know, she told me these things, and I promised her I would try to abide by all of those as I went forward. You know, the mirroring that happens 
and, and so that our sense of who we are and our sense of belovedness, there's that mirroring thing that happened in my relationship with her. And it set me up to go and actually start going to college and to step by step say no to more and more of the abuse that I experienced in my marriage. And finally to be able to leave that marriage yeah. while I was in seminary. So, so these were some healing uh, processes that I, that I went through. And ultimately allow you to say yes to the Mazda Miata, right? That's right. <laughs> you wouldn't have said yes earlier. Oh, no. Well, in my heart, I would want it. But... <laughs> that was a fun car. <laughs> so the quote that I read at the beginning of our conversation, it actually, it goes on. Now I'm going to read the whole quote, and I want you guys to respond to the last part. So... Our heartfelt hope is that this book helps you, our readers, to know that love, not shame, not fear, not hate, not damnation, love is God's meaning. Healing is possible even for the deepest of wounds. Forgiveness for appalling harm can happen. And I think the forgiveness word there, end quote, by the way, I think the forgiveness word there, it jumped out to me because it's not always in, in the current lexicon around trauma and healing. Forgiveness, I think for those of us who have been harmed by people who have more power than we do, forgiveness can feel like there, there's a kind of toxic forgiveness culture yeah. that a lot of us come from, right? And any power-based system where you are pressured to forgive the people who have the power, you know, it's a red flag. And, and the red flag is there for good reason. But psychologically, to get all the way to forgiveness, as I see it, is sort of that's the full cycle of healing. If you can't get there, you haven't really gotten all the way through, even if you don't talk to the person. But in some way, forgiveness is like a, you know, it's, it's a wrapping up of the whole thing. If you see it differently, please, please share. And I'd, I'd love to, to hear from each of you a little bit about that forgiveness piece. I think forgiveness is what you just said, it's complicated. And I want to say a few things that I don't, what forgiveness is not. To me, forgiveness is not trustworthiness. Forgiveness does not mean that you are going to necessarily be in relationship with that person. Forgiveness is not a forget that we forget. I write about this in the book and Dan Allender was an author of an evangelical book on recovering from sexual abuse, I think in the 90s called, and he starts out by saying that it was such a relief. That's the only thing I remember from the book, but and he starts out by saying that forgiveness does not equal a frontal lobotomy. And it was the first <laughs> time I'd heard a, um, a forgiveness spoken in, in such good terms. So I think forgiveness for me starts with the desire to forgive. And before that, it starts with maybe the desire to have the desire to forgive. And I don't think we need to hurry when it, these things come to fruition. And so even if we don't want to forgive, but maybe have the desire to forgive, to have the desire to forgive. And that's also how I view prayer. We may not want to pray, but we may have a desire to have the desire to pray. And so it's it's the beginning of the beginning. And that opens us to hopefully letting, letting go of what binds us. This is when we talk about loving the hell out of ourselves. I think hell is being bound to these things. 
let's say the the arc of our story in the memoir, a lot of it has to do with how we finally came to terms with our mother's complicity in all of the violence we experienced. And we had given her a pass for years and years. And then we began, as we healed, we began to realize, no, she played a critical role in the abuse. And uh, so coming to terms with our mom, and we talk about how we chose to take care of her in her last years of life. Like she came and lived with my husband and me for almost nine years. And then she lived really close to Janine and was with Janine every day for the rest of her life. And how being with her after we'd done so much healing and actually seeing her to some extent wanting to take responsibility for her part in things, that helped us to come to a place of reconciliation. When mom died, I felt like we were good with each other. We loved each other. We understood each other. And there was nothing between us that we left dangling that we would regret later, you know. But for me, what forgiveness does is it has to happen on its own terms. It means it's kind of, it's, it has to happen. It has to emerge. And it's by fits and starts. And it, there's always been this sort of critical moment where I feel some sort of connection or solidarity with the humanity of the person who's harmed me. Once that they are no longer a them, you know, an us and a them, and now there's just us, then forgiveness is possible. And you can't force that to happen. It has to happen on its own time. But we do need to, to be intentional about being open to that. And I think what Janine said is so helpful, you know, just the desire to be open to that. So long as it can take its own amount of time, there's no rushing involved. And I know many Christians think, you know, because of the words of uh, the prayer, uh, the words of, if you, if you don't forgive others, then your father won't forgive you. It's sort of a misinterpretation of what that means. I don't believe that at all. You know, like on face value, you know, if we, that would make us more powerful than God, right? <laughs> you know, with our wounded selves. But forgiveness is ultimately what sets us free to love really, really well. And to not be driven by this residue of being harmed, but rather to be, to be animated in freedom for how we live. Thank you both so much. What an incredible conversation. Uh, I know this is going to be another listener favorite. Elaine, you're, you're going to be like a, you're going to be like a hot free agent. I'm going to have to offer you some sort of contract here uh, to keep you around. (laughs) Well, uh, Dan, thank you for a really good interview. I, Janine and I were disappointed in this previous experience and uh, I, she just kept saying, is this what it's like to be on a podcast? And I'm like, no, it's not what it's like. This, I told her, no, when we're with Dan, he's a good interviewer. You'll be okay. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. It was good. The book is called Loving the Hell Out of Ourselves. The link is in the show notes. Janine and Elaine, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Bye. Bye.